what you want to justify And this is one podcast No human contact And if you ain't too bad Your life is on contract Once it was like 99 documentary Motherfucker It's just one of those days Hi, I'm Nick And I'm Jess And we're back With an episode about the Very recently released HBO documentary Woodstock. What shit? I should have looked up what it's actually called. <laughs> we've, we've fucked it up right out of the gate. In my defense, the title is long and obnoxious. I know. It's like peace. Fuck. Woodstock 99, peace, love, and rage. And rage. Okay. Good of them to give Rage Against the Machine top billing in the title. No, but uh, this was just released as of like a week ago of, of us recording this. And we are both strangely very interested in Woodstock 99, despite the fact that I think between us, we barely like any, like actually like any of the (laughs) bands that played Woodstock 99. Yeah. I'm willing to bet you could probably count on one hand, like the the number of Of acts we actually like. Actually, kind of first before we get into this, how many Uh bands at Woodstock 99 do we actually like, like actually like? Uh, Okay, so Willie Nelson played. Willie Nelson played. Rage Against the Machine played. Yeah. James Brown played. James Brown played. Weird choice. That honestly might be it. Oh, The Roots played. The Roots played. George Clinton played. Okay. Elvis Costello played. Elvis Costello, yeah. Apparently John Enwistle played. Most of the people that played that we like are kind of like the older acts who like really don't fit in there. I don't hear anyone ever talk about the Elvis Costello Woodstock 99 set. No. But yeah, anyway, and there, there, there's a handful of bands that are kind of like ironically fun like Everclear played they're pretty fun and I I enjoy them but I'm not gonna go out on a limb and say that Everclear is a good band yeah I'm sure the the fat boy slim set was fun uh collective soul would be fun even though they're shit you know like there's a lot of there's a lot of bands I think that's like the whole lineup of Woodstock 99 like fun but they're shit is like most of them oh oh i i I missed this one's going over the list brian setzer orchestra also played which uh i will i will stand uh brian setzer and i would go to bat for robbie krieger but he was playing with creed so uh, i can't give him a pass (laughs) on that one yeah no that's sad honestly with the exception of a handful of acts like i hate kid rock i hate moby we'll we'll talk much more about hating moby yeah but with the exception of that most of these bands kind of fall in that like i don't like them but they're kind of fun like if you're it was like 99 seeing corn or seeing limp biscuit would have been fun even though those aren't bands that i listen to yeah i would have totally seen corn like that's that's a good time. I keep looking at this list and seeing people. Mike Ness played, so that would have been probably pretty cool. Yeah. They made a documentary about Woodstock 99, which is pretty... I would say Woodstock 99 is pretty infamous. Yes, it is. I think that most people, if they don't know anything about Woodstock 99, they at least know that it was a disaster. Yes. That's kind of the reputation it's got in the last 20 years, is this was a di- disaster for several reasons, you know, whether you're looking at it from the from the vantage point of did it recreate the initial Woodstock that everybody loves so much or was it a safe and fun time for everyone? You know, and no. I and think if you don't even know much about Woodstock 99, you know, it it was kind of notorious for being dangerous and scary and a riot. Yeah, there was a riot. There was, you know, there's plenty of, you know, information on 
people died there. People were assaulted there. The facilities were bad. There's a lot of stuff that leads to it being notorious. So they made it. They finally made a documentary about it. And I didn't really hear anything about this before we went into it. Like, I didn't know anything about it. So I kind of went in cold. Did you see any reviews or anything beforehand? No, I, I saw some people on Twitter complaining about it. Yeah, that's about all the reviews I saw were just some people saying that they didn't like it. Okay. Yeah, I went in I went in with pretty much no prior knowledge about really what it was going to be about or what it was going to cover. We'll we'll talk about that more in the second half kind of what the documentary actually does. But first we should probably talk a bit about uh Woodstock 99 in general, sort of what it was that made it a disaster and 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 stuff like that. Sort of the prior knowledge that we brought into this, because like I said, this is, this is not a new story. Most of the information about it being a disaster has been around for, for a long time. And we've, we've known about it. Yeah. There were a lot of articles about Woodstock 99 shortly after it, it happened and, and kind of dissecting what went wrong with it and all that. Yes. This has kind of been a cultural topic for pretty much two decades at this point. I guess very briefly, if, if if you wanted to summarize sort of, or I guess we should say like what Woodstock 99 was supposed to be and then like what it actually was. Right. So what was it supposed to be? So the impression that I get is that the original Woodstock was, it was sort of, I don't want to say edgy, but it was sort of, you know, it was very of the times. It was the late sixties. You had a lot of popular acts from the time. Um, a lot of important bands at the time played, you know, Jimi Hendrix obviously played, The Who played, you know, people like that. And then there were a couple bands that they tried to get, but who backed out, who were pretty important bands at the time. There was even talk about like maybe getting the Beatles back together for a live performance. It, it was like a it was like a very big thing where pretty much everyone important was either there or they tried to get them there. And there was very much an atmosphere of granted, it was like the waning of the hippie movement, but it was very much like, let's all come together in this the festival about peace and love. And, you know, and then there was like some social commentary. Jimi Hendrix played Star Spangled Banner and he did his, you know, his dissonant Vietnam bombing stuff in there. And there was some social right. commentary and stuff. So it was like very of the times. And it sort of became this iconic thing for the boomer generation for everything, for both like that was when music was music, but also like, you know, freedom and love and all that stuff. And it seems like they just wanted to take that and say, like, OK, if we did that 30 years later, what 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 does that look like? Who are the bands now who are popular and are saying something? But when you get down to it and you look at the band selection, immediately you have the problem of like, that's not really what's happening there there's not really a lot of social relevance or, or things like that. Like I, I would say probably besides some of the older acts who are kind mm. of like, I get wanting James Brown and Willie Nelson to be there. Cause like they're, they're great obviously, but I don't think that those two performers fit the spirit of Woodstock 99. Really? I think that probably one of the only bands that played there that was sort of had a message was aggressive, like had something to say, was really, I mean, Raging Against the Machine was kind of it, I think. Yeah. Like, if you had a bunch of bands like Rage Against the Machine level who were taking political stances and, and did have a kind of message, like, I think that maybe you could have done that. But the problem is that, like, when you're like, let's take popular bands. We've got Everlast. We've got Kid Rock. We've got Limp Biscuit. 
you're not really going to get a lot of relevant social messaging. Yeah. If you have Kid Rock, you're going to get pretty uh, reactionary social messaging. Yeah. So I think that that was like, that was kind of the idea. And one thing I did learn from the documentary, because I didn't know too much about like the actual people who put it on. But John Schur, who we'll talk about more later, he clearly had no idea what he was doing. And he was very incompetent at it. He didn't have the the know-how to, when he was putting this together, he, he didn't have the know-how to actually put what he was trying to put together together. But it seemed like his idea was like, oh, let's just try the same thing we did back, everyone did back in 69, and it'll probably work. Well, and it, it it's not just 69, but like it, it happened again in 94. They put on Woodstock 94, and Woodstock 94 was a, a success. So I think they were kind of like, well, Sort of a success. It wasn't a success like the original Woodstock, but... It wasn't a massive failure. It wasn't a failure. And I think they were just kind of like, let's do that again. Let's do 94 again. To note, the the lineup on 94 was also much less aggressive and new metal than 99. Yeah, for sure. They they made more of an effort to get like kind of the older bands. And it's just more of a mixed lineup. Yeah, they got some of the older bands. They got some bands like, you know, Spin Doctors. And they got... Melissa Etheridge, they got Blues Traveler. There's got- actually like a lot of bands in 94 that I would have loved to see. Like you got, I mean, I know you're not a Nine Inch Nails fan, but their set for Woodstock 94 is pretty legendary. I would see Mud Covered Nine Inch Nails. I got, yeah. I got, I got no issue with that. Yeah. So like 94's thing was it, ra- it poured rain the whole time and turned into like a huge mud pit. But a fun one. Well, but also like we were saying, like like the lineup of '94. You know, there's a lot of stuff that like I'm not super super familiar with. But like Violent Femmes played. Yeah. Aphex Twin played, which seeing Aphex Twin play is like not the most common occurrence. So I mean, that would have been cool. Yeah, that would have um, been cool. Rollins Band, Nine Inch Nails, Crosby, Stills and Nash, The Band, Primus, The Cranberries. Yeah, Salt and Pepper. That would have been fun. Peter Gabriel. I mean. Bob Dylan, not at the height of Bob Dylan, but still, you know, Bob Dylan. Porno for Pyros. 94 Green Day would have been great. Yeah. Also, I think 94 Metallica, still pretty good. I have a weird thing where I just, I don't really like Metallica, but I got, I'm sure it was yeah, yeah. fine as far as Metallica goes. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm immune to, uh, I'm immune to liking Metallica for some reason. I don't get it. Yeah. I only like Kill Em All. And that's like the only Metallica record that I like. Okay. But yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a whole bunch of stuff. But also, like, I mean, 94, like, I would have seen Metallica if they were there. Like, why not? Yeah. There was a wide variety of stuff. There was some stuff that seemed cool. And also, there's not really a lot of bands that are... It seems like there's more of a mix that's going to attract more of, like, a typical music festival crowd rather than the very bro-y selection of stuff that Woodstock 99 attracted. Yeah, I think when they put the 99 lineup together, they were just thinking, like... Oh, what's popular right now and what was popular was new metal yeah basically what happened is they put 90 woodstock 94 on they're like yeah this worked fine let's do it again in five years woodstock 99 30th anniversary of the original one what could go wrong and uh what did go wrong there well a lot went wrong i think most notoriously a bunch of people were sexually assaulted uh which is not fun to talk about a lot of Stuff logistically went wrong with it. There was not enough food. There was not enough water. They were charging $4 for a bottle of water back in 1999. 
which adjusted for inflation, I, I looked up is like six fifty today for a bottle of water. Right, that's insane. Uh, there was a problem; they didn't have enough porta potties, and they quickly overflowed. And I, I think even before we watched the documentary, we knew this, but yeah. seeing footage of it is so disgusting. Yeah, to, to interrupt a little bit, uh, I will say that even if you are a Woodstock 99 obsessive who knows like everything about it, I did appreciate how much footage the documentary had because yeah. um, did they put that film together, like the original film? That, I don't know. I don't know if they ever did. I don't Actually. know if they ever did, but like I haven't seen most of this footage, so a lot of it was like like I've seen a lot of footage of the bands performing. Right, same. A lot of the behind the scenes stuff of like the crowd, them breaking stuff, the actual riot at the end, the people, the the conditions. A lot of that was new for me, at least visually. So I, I did appreciate that look into it. The conditions are shocking, and it's one thing when you say, "Oh, the toilets overflowed," and it's another thing when you see people. Oh God, people playing in it. Yeah, people just wall wallowing and shit. Like it is just mud, and they're just wallowing in it. It's so disgusting. Yeah, or when they talk about like there being trash everywhere, and then you just see like how much trash was actually everywhere. Yeah. So I, I did appreciate that look into it visually, but um, but yeah, I'll let you continue the uh, the other Woodstock ninety nine issues. Uh, the other thing, I guess, most notoriously, Limp Biscuit come on, they sing their song "Break Stuff," and people are like tearing down plywood and surfing on it, uh, which I think honestly is really kind of fun they have the clip in there where where fred durst is like pointing to the people surfing on the plywood he's like he's like yo that's cool as shit yeah <laughs> I mean, it is it was. honestly it was like but i think that became that has been kind of the driving narrative about woodstock 99 was like fred durst got up there and he said break stuff and everyone broke stuff and i don't think it's that simple no i think it's kind of unfair but we'll get into it later that the the uh, promoter John Schur, he basically blamed Limp Biscuit for what happened. Like yeah. he, he he blames Fred. He's like Fred Durst is a moron, um, which we'll get into why that's a very dumb statement and why that guy sucks. But if we're talking about like the spirit of the times, the song "Break Stuff" is about when you're fed up and you're pissed off and you just have to break stuff. And like they had Limp Biscuit go on towards the end of the festival where everyone's dehydrated, people are feeling like shit. There's yeah. shit everywhere. People haven't showered. Like people are feeling terrible and they are pissed off and they do want to break stuff. Like it, it actually, yeah. it's not really like the song set them off. It's like, that's like the natural narrative of what happened at Woodstock is people got really pissed off and then they broke stuff. Yeah. Also is very hot. I forgot to mention that it was extremely hot. Yes. It was the summer. It was July, but even for July in upstate New York, it's super hot so everyone is dehydrated and angry and picture like three days straight you're covered in shit there's trash everywhere it's sweltering hot you can't shower you're massively dehydrated because you can't even find water one thing i didn't know until i watched the documentary was that they did have free water available but it was this weird fountain design where people could get in the fountain and people did and they were showering in it so of course no one wanted to drink out of that yeah, it was very like 
we should probably get into it later with like the how there was like basically no security, but there was like yeah. nobody to make sure that stuff was happening properly. Like there was nobody to make sure that 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 water facility was actually used as it was meant. Yeah. And the showers didn't work right. The showers were overflowing. So you would get in and shower in like knee height, disgusting water. Yeah. And also there was like there was just like a tarp between like the men and women showers. Like nobody was like watching it. A lot of women just didn't feel safe using them at all. Yeah. Pretty much every like logistical thing that they should have figured out, they they did not do a good job with. Yeah. Every every single thing. Yeah. But so that's sort of what happens at Woodstock 99. At the end, everyone kind of riots. They start tearing stuff down. They finally get fed up. They break into all the supplies and like they steal the food and water and they start a fire and yeah they start burning stuff yeah the cops eventually come in and that's sort of the end of that's sort of how woodstock 99 ends yeah with a bunch of people you know who are fed up with the festival sort of you know stealing things and i thought that actually that was kind of some of the most compelling footage of the documentary actually it was like watching the people like break into the water and take it and like yeah being like vindicated of like it's actually easier to get water now than it was when the festival was yeah and i liked see i liked the interviews they did with the people who attended yeah that was kind of interesting uh to hear their perspective and to hear that they were throwing like frozen pretzels (laughs) at people at the end and i don't know i liked i liked that and it's also weird to think that this was so long ago all those people are now so much older and i'm so much older like if you were 20 when you went to woodstock 99 that would make you like early 40s now Mm -hmm. they're interviewing people who are like kind of early 40s now who were there when they were like late teens to early 20s when they were going and yeah it it is kind of interesting to see to see how those people grew up and their their reflections back on it so through the course of the movie they attempt to answer why Woodstock 99 happened and they put forth a couple arguments as to what was going on both in they they make a couple points about kind of what was going on there but also what was going on in society at the time like there's kind of a right. there's a little bit of a of a global what was happening in the late 90s zeitgeist kind of thing right which it kind of boils down to a couple things bill clinton impeachment Yes. And Columbine. Mm -hmm. And anxiety about Y2K stuff. Yeah, which I don't remember being that anxious about personally. I was pretty young, but... My Y2K memories are... I remember like a couple years before 2000, I was a little kid and I remember people talking about how Y2K was going to be a a big thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that sounds bad. And then Y2K happened and nothing happened. And I was... I was still basically a little kid when that happened. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I guess I'm going to, what was that? What was I into around uh, year 2000 is like when I stopped like being all into like Dragon Ball Z and I was like, I'm going to skateboard. So that's when I got Y2K. <laughs> Y2K was when I got cool. Okay. That's what Y2K was. Yeah. Y2K was when I got cool. I, yeah, I don't, I don't really have any memories beyond like, I remember like it being like kind of a news thing a little bit. I didn't really have much contact with the news. I remember like I asked mm-hmm. my, I think I asked my parents about it. I think like my dad was like, I think I asked him and he was talking about like how the, they're like, oh, the computers, they didn't program them with enough digits. So the, the computer's going to, and then he went out for a pack of smokes Yeah, and didn't come back. <laughs> yeah. It's basically, it's basically it. But also I was, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm younger than all the, the Woodstock 99 attendees. So I I don't have the, I don't have the context of like what, 
you know what would what it would have been to like be thinking about y2k when you're like you know in your early 20s or something so i don't know which also i can't imagine the clinton stuff was really that big of a deal to these people anyway like like all the bros that like do they care about like no but i think it it maybe gives context for like i don't think they necessarily pulled this off that well in the documentary but i think it was meant to give context for like the attitudes toward women at least that's what i'm i'm hoping that that's what that was meant to to say I think you're right. Um, and they do play the clip of Kid Rock, who I will say of all the performers, they do have some clips of both Corn and the offspring being decent people being like, hey, like, let's not grope people and act inappropriately. Like, let's right. be respectful. So so props to those. Like, they did, they did have some like they did show some of the bands like trying to encourage respect in that space. Like, you know, you're there, you're playing music and like live music is kind of weird because I can't really think of any other art forms where like the audience is so frequently like antagonistic to the performer, but comedy. Yeah. Comedy probably. But yeah, like with music, there's like a very, there, there's like a very big culture of just like audiences acting like a dick and pissing off the people performing. Yeah. So like, I totally get it. Like, like you're there and there's, there's like thousands and thousands of people and like, you can't control them. And like, you would like to, you know, even like other bands like Fugazi in the early days, they would just like play like normal punk shows and then somebody ended up getting injured at a at a Fugazi show and I think was paralyzed from it. So from that wow. point, from that point on, like they were like, you are not moshing, you're not slam dancing, you're not doing any of that shit. And like if you started that at a Fugazi show, they would just stop playing. They would tell you to knock it off. And if you didn't and they started playing again and you started trying it again, they would kick you out. If you were if a guy was like um being like inappropriate with a girl and they saw like they would kick him out. Like they were well, they were like zero tolerance for that shit. Right. Even like Fugazi, like a band where like you would ex- also side tangent, um, the the Fugazi documentary instrument is is great. But there's a section at the end of that where they're interviewing a lot of people who go to Fugazi shows. And it kind of like highlights how a lot of the people going there are like on a totally different wavelength with the band. They're like, I just wanted to play some I just wanted to play some fast, aggressive music. What is this bullshit? Like, why are they telling me this? You know, even with a band who's like a lot less popular than a lot of these who has a lot more like progressive thoughtful fan base like even they dealt with that shit so like i can only imagine what it's like to be a band up there being like hey i would appreciate it if people weren't being shitty but you have this giant mass of bros that you can't really do anything to so yeah so i i do appreciate that they had like corn and the offspring in there you know uh, the the one corn guy in like present day talking about that, and then like the the offspring guy on stage was like was like, hey, if a if a girl's crowd surfing above you, like don't grope her. Like let's just you know yeah. not do that. But yeah, but that gives context to Kid Rock, who is one of the few people in here who is a piece of shit. Where he's like, Monica Lewinsky is a what, what do you say? He's like Monica a Lewinsky hoe. is a hoe. a hoe, and Bill Clinton is a pimp. Yes, which like no. And unfortunately, that was totally the predominant societal attitude about that. It was so fucked up. It was extremely fucked up. Monica Lewinsky got so much bullshit from that. And it really has only been, it feels like it's only been very recently where everyone was kind of like, oh, we were being really shitty to somebody who was a victim. Yeah. Oh, like looking at the power dynamic of young intern and most powerful man in the world. Like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have been really shitty to her. Yeah. I do have to say she seems to be like doing okay now. She seems pretty. Yeah. She seems like pretty, um, 
pretty self-assured. She's kind of like, you know, gotten past a lot of that stuff. And I think that society is like finally reached the point of like not shooting on her as much. So I, I appreciate that. But it was a very it was a very fucking weird time where everyone was just like, I mean, like Monica Lewinsky was the punchline of like every late night talk show. Every late night. From, yeah. From like the time it came out until like 2015. Like, yeah, like fucking Jay Leno shit. Leno was doing Lewinsky jokes like until he retired, basically. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that that probably that probably was there to highlight sort of the prevailing societal attitudes and, you know, Kid Rock. And I think they also mentioned Girls Gone Wild, which was such a huge thing at the time. Woodstock 99 definitely did have that aesthetic. Like, yeah, I don't know how to describe There's that There's a lot of boobs in this documentary. Yeah. And unfortunately, you see a lot of them getting groped. Yeah. Not by people, I'm assuming not by people who are like the boob owner's partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can't imagine so. I think there was a lot of pressure on young women to do that, like to take their tops off everywhere because of Girls Gone Wild. Yeah. And also not a very evolved culture in terms of what you can do to the woman now that she's taken her top off. They did include a lot of footage of like guys with signs that are like, take your top off or like, a, like people shouting, like, take your top off, take your top. Yeah. Off. So yeah, it- right. Like Rosie Perez was there, I guess to bring, I don't know what she was doing. Yeah, I had no actually. clue. Why she was there. <laughs> like introducing somebody or something. And she was on stage and everyone was like chanting to show her tits. Yeah. And, and it's like, just like, why would you, you know? think that, why would you ever think that you could see Rosie Perez's tits? That is, I don't understand. <laughs> At Woodstock 99. I don't but know. But that, that was, I think, the awful culture. Thinking back on it, like, they did include enough of that stuff that I'm like, I'm like, yeah, they, they made a pretty compelling argument for it being, like, a very Girls Gone Wildy culture. Because, like, there was just a lot of that, like, hey, I've got a camera. I say, hey, show me your tits. You show me your tits. Yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking of the Sunny episode, like you've gone wild. <laughs> so yeah, so the the Clinton thing, the Y2K thing, and then Columbine. Columbine. I think that of the arguments, I think that the Columbine violence thing is maybe the one that I'm like, I'm the most unsure of the premise of this argument. Yeah, I'm not sure how that how that factors in really. Because they're they're saying like, hey, there's these outcasts and they're violent. They kind of play both sides of it because they sort of acknowledge that the Columbine argument that violent music and violent video games caused this is bullshit. But they also kind of make the argument that all of these white guys listening to Limp Bizkit are just inherently angry and violent and prone to violence. Yeah, I think there is. I mean, one of the one of the ideas put out there is that there is a lot of white male rage that doesn't really have a place to go in the sense that in 1969 there was this unifying force of protesting the vietnam war like you had something to be angry about and then there there was this idea that in woodstock 99 there wasn't really anything to be angry about there was just this sort of free-floating anger yeah which i mean just hang on a couple years because you'll get plenty to be angry about (laughs) (laughs) so the idea that like just necessarily because these bands are angry and make like aggressive music that you sort of necessarily have that misplaced anger in in the audience is kind of i feel like it's the same argument as like oh if you play violent video games you're going to shoot people it's like no that's not true like you know there are video games that are violent that are fun and people play and they're not violent i think like particularly like a lot of niche 
kind of heavier music communities like there are certain branches of metal and punk and stuff where there's actually like very nice thoughtful people that do them and like honestly if you're talking about like some of them generally like not all the time but like generally like most respectful music spaces a lot of the punk scene is like very progressive when you're moshing like people that are moshing want to be moshing if you don't want to be moshing you're not you know you're not going to be put in harm's way there's a lot of like understanding of the etiquette and that stuff and just because the music is really heavy and and angry and and that there's yelling like and like yeah sure like maybe that's an outlet for a lot of things like punk has been political a lot of the time because there's a lot of stuff to be angry about in that sphere there's a lot of punk that's like angry about racism that's angry about police brutality like people are just taking that anger and and putting it towards something but like just because the music is fast and aggressive there's no correlation between that and like necessarily requiring an audience that's that's angry and gonna do like violence for no reason also like looking at all of the artists at woodstock 99 most of them are not new metal most of them aren't aggressive really red hot chili peppers like yeah they're not an angry aggressive band everclear bruce hornsby like the chemical brothers canadians our lady peace and tragically hip los lobos Alanis Morissette, it feels like they take the energy of the Limp Biscuit set and they kind of stretch that to be like a more of a dominant narrative of like every band there was like Limp Biscuit. Right. And like nobody watching Rusted Root was like rioting. <laughs> yeah, I was just I was just looking at Rusted Root. <laughs> or like Dave Matthews band. Dave Matthews band or Brian Setzer Orchestra. Like yeah. that's not Limp Biscuit aggression. But also like there are festivals, like there are metal festivals that are only metal that go mm-hmm. over fine and like I know a lot of decent nice people that go to those because they like metal like just because you have a lineup of really aggressive bands doesn't mean you're going to get Woodstock 99 yeah it, it is the same argument as like oh if the Columbine kids hadn't listened to angry music it's like no that wasn't a factor well speaking of Columbine this does remind me they're I'm a little older than you and I remember some of my friends some of my friends did listen to corn and all of them pretty much listened to like nine inch nails and stuff like kind of angry music. And there was a lot of anger after Columbine because I think a lot of us felt like we were being scapegoated as uh, yeah. you know, people who dress in black and are goth or whatever, you know, I think there was a lot of anger, but I wouldn't say the Woodstock 99 crowd had a lot of those people in it necessarily. It was very bro-y. Yeah, but there might have been some. And like those people would definitely be angry about Columbine then because the narrative about Columbine so quickly after it, like that happened in April, I think, of that year. Uh And Woodstock was July. Like the, the narrative was very much like trench coat mafia. A lot of my friends were really worried, honestly, about what was going to happen to them uh, and how they would be treated because they were guys who, you know, were all black. And not just that, but like it, it happened earlier, but West, West Memphis three, that case was mm-hmm. also a thing that kind of loomed large over the nineties goth kid. <laughs> yeah. Or like anyone who's like into like 
paganism or Wicca or something like that, that sort of thing. Everyone was very worried that they were going to get accused of a horrible crime. Yeah. Like you said, I was too young for that stuff, but I remember like the cultural shift. Schools are like, you're not allowed to wear a coat longer than this. Like, no, this, yeah, no, it was this. ridiculous. Video yeah. games, bad. Angry music, yeah. bad. It was very much like if you listen to Marilyn Manson, you are going to kill people. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine being angry if, if you're like, "Hey, I'm just a, I'm just a nice person who likes to wear black and listen to Nine Inch Nails," and now everyone's looking at you like you're going to do something violent just because yeah. you are choosing to be part of a certain subculture. I mean, like Limp Biscuit wasn't really a, Limp Biscuit was very broy. Yeah, Limp Biscuit is very like that. Like that particular branch of new metal was very centric yeah even like the way fred durst dressed with like the the khakis and the baseball hat like that's a very bro look yeah except then like west borland wears like black and white makeup and stuff or whatever like it's a very very weird he was like from a different band basically. yeah very weird <laughs> band aesthetic there yeah the idea that there's something inherent about like a limp biscuit record that's going to drive you to violence is sort of argued against in this documentary but also sort of argued for they're kind of making the argument that the festival promoters are wrong in saying that like Limp Bizkit inspired this but they're also kind of saying that like the music did foster this white male aggression yeah I don't really know how to take that but I will say that probably what didn't help the festival is that it was expensive and like festivals in general are a very like kind of like upper middle class white person sort of thing because yeah. like you do need money you do need the ability to travel yeah you do need all the stuff i'm gonna I'm, I'm willing to bet that the selection of people there which was overwhelmingly like white males from like 18 to early 20s or whatever i'm gonna say that that's probably not the best representation of all these bands fan bases but it's sort of mm-hmm. disproportionately like like a lot of the people they interviewed were like, I just graduated college. I just graduated college. It's a bunch of like white people who went to college, graduated, and they're like, hey, it's the summer after college. I'm going to go, you know, let's take a road trip to this thing. So it's like it's like people with relative means. And, you know, in the late 90s, you're white. You finish college. There's still some kind of promise that you're going to be able to like do something with your life. Like these are, yeah. for the most part, like probably guys. There's who still are, some optimism for the future there. There's still some optimism. And I think most of the angst is more like ennui than like actual like, oh, we're just desperate and hopeless. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's like a lot of like fairly well off white kids who are like, let's go see Metallica. So I don't think that that I don't think that that's really probably the best representation of these fan bases anyway, because most of the most of the footage in here where they're talking to people, the guys are pretty broy. And that most of the, the footage you see, everyone looks pretty broy. Yeah. Everyone there looks a lot more like Fred Durst than they look like any of the other performers, basically. Yeah. Like ICP played, but there's not a lot of jugglers there. I don't think I saw. Yeah, I, I didn't see a lot of jugglers, but I, I mean, there probably were. Actually, there probably weren't because jugglers probably could not afford the admission. <laughs> yeah, jugglers are traditionally broke as fuck. That's why. Uh, that's why gathering of the jugglers is like. But that's like another. I mean, it's funny they don't mention ICP at all, but like they put on their own music festival regularly called the Gathering of the Juggalos, and it usually is not a disaster like this. I think sometimes it has been, but I will say that like gathering of the juggalos is basically what Woodstock 99 was trying to be like a better incarnation of it. Yeah, because juggalo culture is very let's come together and like have this communal respect based on this 
aggressive music you know it's like yeah let's be a family and the music is all like i'm gonna cut your head in half with a hacksaw and and fucking murder yeah. you ah. but like for, for some <laughs> but, reason yeah but they're a family but they're a family and i and i will say also like gathering of the juggalos like olive garden you when you're here your family <laughs> i think we'll talk about a comment that john sure made in a, in a little bit all that stuff with like a bunch of like women walking on topless and stuff. But like that happens at gathering the juggalos too. And as far as I know, it's not really as big of a problem there. It's just like a, they're like, yeah, it's yeah. a thing. Like, cause I think that there is something to ICP's credit. I think that they have really tried to instill a message of like, yeah, our music is kind of violent a lot of the times, but like we're respectful to our family members in the juggalo community. And like in their, in their strange they're like dads now, <laughs> So I think that's probably a big part of it, too. Like they I don't think that they talk about things in traditional terms, but like in their particular juggalo speak, like I think they are generally pretty big on like ideas of consent and like respect for each other. They just have like their own. They like have their own like weird little ecosystem for that. I think the gathering of the juggalos is probably like what Woodstock 99 wanted to be. Only the people who go to gathering of the juggalos are like very invested. They're invested in community and a lifestyle and like they actually have like a genuine respect for that whereas woodstock 99 was a lot of eh, let's go see limp biscuit yeah should we talk about john sure should we talk about moby i think that the john sure things are probably there's a couple like concrete things are i, I want to save moby for last okay it's the most fun to roast so. yeah People will have to get through most of the podcast to get to the best part, which is us ripping into Moby. Who is hands down the biggest piece of shit in this whole documentary. Yeah, But yeah, so John Schur first, he is, he was like the main guy. He was like one of the promoters. He, he, he got the bands and stuff and he makes several claims that I, I believe that the producers of this documentary put in there because they allow him to 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 give his perspective but i think they do it in a way where it's like yeah this guy's a piece of shit yeah he's basically hanging himself maybe you have others but i saw there as being like two main things he argues and there's some footage of him back in the day like when there was like a press conference for it and people were like this is a disaster and he's like well you fucking do it better fuck you like yeah he was like very aggressive with the media he's very aggressive to the music media and like mtv and stuff He's like saying, you're putting your MTV narrative on us, man. Yeah, he basically blames MTV's coverage for why there's a negative perception of the festival. So he puts that on them. He blames Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit because he's like, Fred Durst was a moron. He was encouraging all this stuff and blah, 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 blah. Which, like we said, you reached out to get a band to play there whose biggest song is called Break Stuff. Yeah. And they play break stuff because it's the most popular song. And then you get mad that people break stuff. It's like the scorpion and the frog. It's clear from him talking about this. He had no idea who any of the bands were. I get the sense that he was purely in this for the money. He was like, oh, who's popular? A Limp Biscuit, whatever. Get them. And he's like, Fred Durst was a moron. And like the Limp Biscuit set at Woodstock 99, like, like I said, I'm not a Limp Biscuit fan, but like they put on a good set. Like, what else do you want from a Limp Biscuit set? Yeah, you paid them to go there and be Limp Biscuit, and they put on a show. Just because people get hyped up and start breaking stuff during break stuff does not mean it's not Fred Durst's fault. You told him to go there and play that song. He also asks the Red Hot Chili Peppers to like calm the crowd down when they're starting the light fires, and then they they start playing fire. I, I do have to say the situation that you never want to find yourself in is that there is a fire raging, and the only one who can maintain order is Anthony. Key. Yeah, and like Flea has his dick out 
fully like <laughs> Flea is fully naked shaking his dick at the audience and then John Schur is like uh some people started a fire so we need some fire trucks to get in here and we'd like to have this continue but we need to have this uh can you and he's like he's and he, I guess he tells Anthony Key just like can you please like help us here and then Anthony Key just is like shit's on fire huh <laughs> they start playing a cover of Jimi hendrix's fire uh, as the shit's burning and like they're trying to get like fire trucks in and stuff what did you think was going to happen in that scenario like it's fucking anthony kiedis like what yeah you know john sure like these idiots it's like what do you expect these bands to do like they show up you give them money to play songs like you're the one that's in charge of the logistics you're the one that's in charge of safety like you are the one who's supposed to be keeping track of this stuff. Yeah. I think one thing the documentary does well is show just how absent the security was. Yes. They interview a guy who works security there and they basically like, you had to go to like this little course where they basically give you all the answers to the tests and then they have you fill out a Scantron and they're like, yeah, you're certified to do security. And they give you a shirt and a badge and then they're like, go do it. Basically your entire security force was just like bros who were like, I'm at a festival now who didn't do anything or like put their little um, lanyard away and like turn their shirt inside out so they wouldn't get in trouble. And they just like went off and did whatever. So they were- right. They were kind of scared to even be there at the end to, to enforce anything. So they simultaneously didn't want to get in trouble from the cops from, from not enforcing anything, but also like they didn't want the rioters to attack them. So yeah. Part of what facilitated all the all the stuff like the people misusing the water facilities and like the assaults and stuff is just there was basically no security like nobody was maintaining order there. Yeah, and you don't even need I don't think you even need security like quote unquote security to do a lot of that stuff. But you need some trained volunteers like you need somebody to stand by the water fountain and be like, don't get in the water fountain. It's only for drinking, not for bathing. Yeah, but like you can look to the past to examples of places that pulled off really good security details like Altamont. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's one of the things I've been meaning to bring up is like this is what happens when you fuck around with security. If, If your security is like a bunch of like untrained people or if your security is a bunch of hell's angels, like they're both examples of what can go wrong the management of woodstock 99 was just a disaster like there was no effort put into making sure that it was actually a safe and workable festival like it was a disaster yeah i guess the last thing i want to say about john sure unless you have any other points you want to bring up is that and i think that this was probably the most deliberate thing on the filmmakers part of like look at this piece of shit is when they were talking about sexual assaults and, and stuff there and they have him on camera and he's basically like uh if these women didn't want to be like they took their tops off like they clearly wanted it like he was basically making the they wanted it based on how they were dressed argument yeah he is victim blaming all the women who took their tops off and saying they you know not that they should do anything to you if you take your top off but you shouldn't take your top off yeah like he was like hey, you're asking for it at that point you're it's asking like, for it yeah it's like all right this is if they're interviewing you for a documentary in 2020 2021 or whenever like don't say that on camera like what the <laughs> fuck is going through your head you have to know better like how do you how do you not know at least to not say that i think the documentary did a good job of like portraying how much of a piece of shit he was and like basically yeah. You can kind of infer like the reason this thing was a disaster was because he was a piece of shit who didn't manage it. Yeah. He blames everybody else for his problems. It's like, oh, well, the reason people got violent is because Limp Biscuit played. And the reason that people got assaulted was because the women weren't wearing enough clothing. And it's like, OK, well, you are the one who put this on. Like you at some point have to accept some blame for the fact that this was a disaster. Yeah. 
he was really shitty and like defending Fred Durst a bit where it's like blaming Limp Bizkit for that is shitty but like victim blaming women who got assaulted just for going to a music festival is really fucking shitty yeah the part about the assaults and stuff was like really like I really felt bad during that part yeah me too it's uh it's awful yeah they kind of they go into a bit of detail about at least one of the cases but it's hard to know how many people were because a lot of people you know one of the women they talked to who attended started a website afterwards so that people could anonymously uh, write in and and kind of talk about their experience if they were sexually assaulted at Woodstock 99 and she said there were dozens of them the amount of people that had to have something happen to them who just didn't tell anybody like the numbers on that have to be astounding yeah to have the guy who put it on just go on there and then blame these like 18, 19 year old girls for that happening to them is right. like, yeah. It's just, it's fucking disgusting. Like they're so young and you're just saying it's their fault because they took their tops off because a bunch of people were goading them into it. And also, like, you put on a festival where it's like a fucking million degrees. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, it's, it's so hot. Like, how, who could blame anyone for taking their shirt off? Yeah, it's like, it's fucking hot. It's disgusting. Like, nobody can shower. Everyone's filthy. Right, like, no one can shower. Yeah. Like, can you really blame people for taking their clothes off in that scenario? Like, right. And that's also part of, I think, the Woodstock vibe uh, the original woodstock vibe is like oh it's like hippies like you know, nu- nudity yeah there was a lot of nudity at the at the original one yeah i admittedly have you ever watched the proper like the woodstock film of the original one? i actually haven't i haven't either like i've watched i've seen the footage of the who that exists from it yeah because i've seen like every who thing and i've watched you know Jimi hendrix at woodstock the concert me too yeah but like I haven't seen the proper thing because like honestly there's a lot of stuff with the original Woodstock like I don't really care about. <laughs> yeah, there there is. There's a lot of stuff that didn't I think we remember Woodstock sixty-nine as all stone cold classics and it, it wasn't. Maybe I will watch the original Woodstock film. But like the one thing that I do know is like from the anytime there's like a snippet of like original Woodstock, like when the bands are playing, like there's a lot of topless women, there's a lot of people sitting on shoulders with their tops off. Like that was I mean, that was a sixties hippie free love staple and like they did kind of re- yeah. like for for wanting to recreate Woodstock again, like that was a fixture of the original Woodstock. Yeah. They made it seem based on the interviews that a, that a ton of people who went there were just like bros who like like Metallica and didn't really know anything. Probably like one of like the the goofiest bits of footage in the documentary is they're interviewing a guy right in front of this mural that has Jimi Hendrix written on it huge and they're like who played the Star Spangled Banner at the original Woodstock? And the guy was like, I don't know. He's like, come on, really think. And the guy's well, like, does he say Johnny? He's something? like, he's like, I don't know. Is his name like Jerry or something? Jerry. <laughs> and like, he's standing in front of a, a he's standing from a wall where the, where the name Jimmy, the name Jimmy Hendrix is painted in like six foot tall letters. It was Jerry Hendrix, actually. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> his hey, brother, Jim- Jerry. Hey, hey, Jimmy, it's your cousin. It's your cousin, Jerry Hendrix. You know that, you know that new sound you're looking for? <laughs> um, they do paint it as like a lot of people. They're not really knowing about the original Woodstock. But like, I have to imagine that a decent number of people like probably had seen the Woodstock film and like probably did know. Like, I think what people know about Woodstock is like, okay, bunch of like cool 60s bands. Everyone was naked everyone was high and rolling around in the mud so like like, i can understand why you would be like hey woodstock 99 like let's take our clothes off let's take our tops off and roll in the mud which is actually shit mud is sewage (laughs) i have a hypothesis that 
there was probably more sexual assault at the original Woodstock than we like to acknowledge. Right. I was going to say that and you beat me to it, but yes, I think so too. Okay. You, you talk on that if you, if you'd like to, and then I'll, I'll have my thing. Okay. I'll speak on it. No, I think that a lot of what our, a lot of our perceptions about the original Woodstock and the sixties, I think are idealized and they're probably, you know, I think it was probably a lot worse than we think. And I think free love was not, as free as we like to think. Yeah. If it's 69 and somebody sexually assaulted you, I think those people would just not come forward and they would not talk about it. And the culture around it was so much different than like even the idea of like... The culture was very much like... I don't know. It was kind of an obligation. Like it was just kind of expected. You're going to ball somebody. That's what happens. And whether you want to or not, like whatever. If somebody like grabs you and it's unwanted like i don't even know if there was the framework to even think of it in those terms really because it was just kind of an expected thing they're also they didn't necessarily have the same ideas we have evolved about consent yeah and i i think rape was still thought of very much as a guy grabs you off the street and not a thing that you know you go on a date with a guy and he takes it to a place you didn't want to take it that wasn't thought of as rape I think that if we had access to information about the original Woodstock the way we do of 99, we would probably be equally as horrified about some of the stuff that happened there. We just don't have we don't have access to that stuff. I can't look back on that one and think that it was that it was really any better because like also that one was poorly organized and people kind of rioted there. It was kind of a disaster in a lot of ways. We don't think of it that way, but logistically, a lot of things went wrong with the original Woodstock. They were expecting 50,000 people and they got 500,000 people. People were just abandoning their cars on the road and walking. It was so traffic jammed. There wasn't the infrastructure to support it. People tore stuff down. People got angry. Everyone was filthy. Like they had a lot of the same problems. We just idealize it as this, you know, kind of hippie utopia rather than like a, a new metal dystopia. Yeah. Maybe the only real difference is that the music held up better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the real difference is that I would I would still rather listen to Jimmy's Woodstock set than like uh, to transfer into our into our next topic. Listen to a Moby set. Yes, I think Moby emerged as like the person who made me the most angry of anyone on this documentary. <laughs> Moby is the antagonist of this film, in my yeah, mind. he is the villain of this piece. And I don't think they were trying to make him the villain. Okay, but, okay, okay. Or do you think they were? There, okay, so there is one thing in here that slightly makes me think that the filmmakers had a bone to pick with Moby. Because they give him a lot of screen time. He talks a lot. He is holier than thou the entire time. Yeah. His whole thing when he gets in here is like, we pulled up and we knew something was wrong and this wasn't how it was. And this isn't, you know, you get bad vibes and it's like, okay. Like, and they show, they show how his name wasn't on like a placard out front. Yeah. They have, they have footage of him looking like a total nerd in 99. Like he's he's like, sitting there going the fucking fat boy slim is on this and I'm not. Yeah. He's like, he's like, who are these? Like the offspring who's heard of these bands? Why is my name not on that sign? My name's <laughs> not on that sign. Everyone else is on the sign. Why am I not? He's having like a meltdown in his trailer or I guess like still on his tour bus or whatever about how his his name isn't handwritten on the like the really informal little Woodstock sign. Yeah. Because like, let's be honest, who's going to Woodstock 99 for Moby in the first place? Yeah. This is why I think that the filmmakers kind of were shitting on him a little bit. It's very, very subtle. 
But there is a point where they're talking about the evolution of new metal. But there's this one dude who's talking about how like the history of music in America, it's very often like white people adopting black culture. There's kind of this argument that the film makes that like new metal is like angry white person music kind of melding with like and kind of taking stylistic elements from like angry black person music. So this guy has the soundbite about like white people taking black music and then smash cut directly to Moby. Which is, right. I believe, an intentional choice because okay. people have given Moby shit because he samples a lot of like black music and makes more money off of it than the original artist ever did. Right. I'm not super knowledgeable about Moby's catalog because he makes bullshit music that sucks, but <laughs> he has a lot of songs that like will sample old blues songs and stuff. And he has made so much more money off of that than any of the original black artists did. Yeah. And you could also argue that Moby is a white guy operating in, in a black musical sphere in the first place. Exactly. Yes. Dance music. I am choosing to believe that the decision by the filmmakers to do that, where they're talking about white people taking black music and then immediately cutting the Moby's face was a deliberate choice. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I think, I don't know. It felt too like something that I would do if I was in charge of it. So yeah. that's why I thought. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of also think it's like, maybe it's like one of the things where they gave John Schur a lot of screen time to kind of, they, they kind of gave him the rope to hang himself. Yeah. I kind of think that maybe they put Moby on a bunch so people would just be like, ah, fuck this guy. He's so annoying. I hope so. At first, I thought it was just because maybe other people didn't want to talk to them. Like, I understand why maybe Fred Durst does not want to talk to them or was afraid this was going to be uh, very antagonistic or whatever. If I was Fred Durst out and you were making a Woodstock, I would assume you were going to shit on me, so I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. I wish he I wish he was in there, though. But yeah, I do think there was so much Moby. And, and I do... Now that you're saying that, I think maybe you're right. And they were also giving Moby a chance to look shitty. Well, he just loves to hear his own voice. He just oh, will not God. fucking shut up. And he's like giving his opinions on like metal bands and stuff. And it's like, dude. Yeah. And he does just keep talking about like progressive conscious hip hop and stuff. Yeah. And he's talking about like, <laughs> like, like EDM culture and shit. It's like, dude, this is so yes, there was a, there was like a rave tent at Woodstock 99, but that was like. So, like, people could do ecstasy. Like, nobody gave a shit about that Moby was playing at Woodstock 99. I don't know. Like, they were kind of talking about how the Rave 10 was kind of a bad move because the crowd is largely a new metal crowd. But then they cut to this footage of people seemingly enjoying themselves in the Rave 10. Like, they, it didn't, it kind of undercut the point they were trying to make about that also being a disaster because it did look like everyone was enjoying themselves. It didn't look like, like, no one was having a bad time there. In the past, I would think that you couldn't pull that off. But I think by the late 90s, like, I think there was enough crossover between that stuff where, like, I think you could be a Metallica fan and also be into, like, dance music. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the whole the whole thing with music festivals is that you don't have to go to see every obviously you pick and choose whatever bands and things you're interested in i mean the rave going all night from like a logistic sense of sleeping and stuff like that sounds like a nightmare to just be like awake and dehydrated for three days yeah plus like i'm actually surprised more people didn't die yeah i was about to say because like they give an account of some people who went this like little group of friends and their one friend dave really wanted to see metallica it was his favorite band he's like he kept a diary and he's like i'm gonna see metallica get in the pit um, and they kind of have some of his thoughts throughout there where he's like, I've seen so many titties that I'm kind of getting sick of it, but I'm going to see, I got to get, I got to be, you know, I got to be in, you know, the pit and Metallica. I got to get in the film. Um, and so his one friend with him is like feeling really bad at Metallica. He's like, dude, I got to go. And then the guy's like, yeah, you know, no worries. So they go and they go back to the tent 
and then like the next day they can't find their friend and it turns out that their friend what did he have like he was like hyper hyperthermia yeah so he overheated and like he actually opposite of hypothermia because like and that's like what the other guy was kind of feeling and why he left because he just started feeling bad but yeah so the guy who's like dream was to see metallica and get in the pit like he just he died from the heat yeah he was 24 and he died um, so it's like these people like giving this account of like their their friend dying. The rave tent, like they were talking about how easy it was to get drugs into Woodstock '99, and yeah, I don't know like what the drug scene would be at a Woodstock '99 type thing. A rave tent would have been ecstasy. Like I don't know how many people specifically would have brought ecstasy to that, but like at the rave tent there would have been ecstasy, and like not having water access, like that just is that just sounds like a. It, that's a disaster. That's a like disaster. it's very dangerous. Yeah. If people who don't do drugs are dying from heat and lack lack of water, yeah. like that just is is a horrible idea. Um, yeah. The the young man who died. It's very tragic. They also kind of say like he was treated like he was on drugs or something, and he wasn't. Yeah. And they didn't treat him properly for hyperthermia. So it's just it's awful. It's just like this like normal group of people. They're like, we didn't bring drugs. We didn't do drugs. We were just there to see some music. Our 24-year-old friend is dead now. Yeah. If you are in a very hot place and you get suddenly very cold, that's a very bad sign. Get out of there. It's my safety. um... (laughs) Yeah. Also, if you're in a very cold place and you suddenly feel very warm. Very warm. That's, yeah. And you want to take your clothes off. That's very bad. Yeah, if you get the Woodstock 99 bug, but you're climbing Everest, it's probably a, probably not a good yeah. sign. I don't know. So, like, the accounts from the people who were there of what happened and, like, the conditions. Like, there was a lot of stuff there that's, like, very... That is pretty chilling about... Like, the idea of just, like, wanting to go see Metallica and fucking dying. Like, that's... Yeah. I don't know. Back to Moby. He had this, like, chip on his shoulder. He was, like, acting like he was better than all the other acts. Who is, uh... Who's collective soul? I'm Moby, like that kind of shit. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. dude, no one like you're fucking Moby. No, like your your career is that you can be on the soundtracks of boring movies and get rich from it. That is your career. What difference is there between Moby and Limp Biscuit, really? If they're both they're both co opting black music, according to what Moby said himself. So uh, the difference is that Limp Biscuit puts on a more fun show. <laughs> I would sincerely rather spend time with fred durst than moby i think he would be less of a shithead also it just made me very angry to see moby in here in this documentary where where they spend a lot of time talking about sexual assaults that happen there and moby is a fucking creep yes i don't know if you remember the stuff that happened with moby and natalie portman uh yeah i i do but but recap quickly he claimed to have been briefly dating natalie portman And she came out and said, we were not dating. This guy was just a creepy older man who was being weird with me when I was fresh out of high school. That's the Moby vibe for you. That's the energy he brings. Honestly, his whole demeanor during the interviews is he's he's like, we got there and I, I knew it wasn't safe. And I just I was like, something's off here. The vibes are bad. And it's like, all right, dude, like, chill out. You were there and you're like, they didn't put my name on the sign. (laughs) <laughs> and then you played, yeah. <laughs> you played the rave tent. Like what? His narrative throughout this that he wanted to sell was the like he got there and he was like, "I have bad premonitions that this is going to be a fucking disaster." Yeah. He like put his ear to the ground and he was like sniffing the air and he was like, "Bad things are going to happen here." 
he can hear like the storm clouds rolling in and he has his he has his spidey sense he has his moby sense that tells him that bad <laughs> things are going to happen and he's like we were planning to stay the weekend but we were like let's just get out of here so like first of all I'm led to believe that he played on the first day, which like it wasn't even that bad on the first day. Right. Second of all, you probably left because it was hot as shit and it sucked. Contractual ob- obligation is over. You're you're done. Like you played, it's it. If I was supposed to play Woodstock 99 and it was like hot as shit and like the facilities sucked, they'd be like, yeah, I'd get out of here too. I don't want to. But also like he said he was going to hang around. He's no, going to hang around yeah. to see Limp Biscuit. Like he doesn't, he already admitted to not liking any of the bands. Like why would you hang around? Moby could never have survived those conditions it was way too hot he is a frail man moby if he was a concert goer there moby would have <laughs> dropped dead within the first 15 minutes he would have been the first woodstock 99 <laughs> casualty and he would have like they would have carted his body out and they would have been like they would have been like oh he died of some extinct victorian fainting disease he has dropsy <laughs> i don't know moby just like granted i'm predisposed to hate moby but he is just smarmy and he is full of himself and obnoxious throughout the entire thing. He is really obnoxious. And in contrast, I think Jonathan Davis, the front man for Corn, comes off as a gentleman and a scholar. Oh, yeah. He, he's great in this. He comes across as really nice. I think that... Um, he just seems like a really nice, chill guy. He came across great in this. He was very, like... I want to say that all the musicians they interviewed kind of had this thing where... Because um, they interviewed uh, one of the dudes from The Roots, too. yeah. And everyone kind of had this vibe of like, they were kind of felt bad that this was such a disaster. And like, they kind of had this, I don't want to say like, like not guilt, because it wasn't their fault. But they kind of just like had this general feeling of like, ah, I kind of survivors guilt. Yeah, they kind of had survivors guilt. They kind of had this, this vibe of like, ah, it kind of sucks. It's like, this could have been really cool. But it kind of, it kind of wasn't. Yeah. Whereas Moby was like, I got there. I'm better than this. He came across entirely differently than any of the other musicians. Like he wasn't like, oh, it kind of sucks that I played this thing and it ended up being a disaster for a lot of people. It was like, I got there. I knew it was bad. I'm smarter than everyone else. Yeah. That's the vibe that he put off as opposed to the other handful of musicians who were interviewed in this. Who? Yeah. And I think we've already talked about the offspring kind of come off as, you know, they're they seem decent. Yeah, there were a couple parts where where the them in present day were interviewing. Once again, don't like their music, but they came across yeah. as decent guys, and I think that they were. I will um, say the thing that doesn't come off decent with them is when they come out on stage. They uh, Dexter Holland takes a baseball bat to some effigies of the Backstreet. Was it the Backstreet Boys? It was the Backstreet Boys, yeah. Yeah, which kind of doesn't come off very well. Like, I'm not saying it's a big deal, but it, it has a bit of a disco demolition derby vibe. I will say that that, that D- Dave Matthews quote is worse. <laughs> I think you, yeah, I've been waiting for you to say it. So, okay, so correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> can you say it in a Dave Matthews voice? I don't know if I can do Dave. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I think they only play part of it. What part do they have in the in the documentary? Do They, they only have like the last part, right? I think the last okay. part, so, yeah. So after I was kind of curious about the Dave Matthews set because we actually you're a big Dave head. I'm a huge David. Um, so actually, a long <laughs> time ago, we actually ended up watching a ton of the Woodstock 99 sets for like, yes. I don't know. Do you know what prompted that? I don't know. I think we were just talking about Woodstock 99 and we started watching. Them. Yeah, we were talking about. And then I was visiting you and 
your neighbor knocked on the wall or something for us to keep it down. <laughs> we just got this like thing in our heads to be like, oh, let's watch a bunch of Woodstock 99 sets. The We watched like the fun ones. Like, we watched like, you know, Limp Biscuit and like Kid Rock and stuff like the, the goofier ones. But I, I hadn't watched the, the Dave Matthews set. And so I put that on. I kind of skimmed around to hear them play like Ants Marching, which is the only Dave Matthews band song I know. The, the titular Dave Matthews as a bit of stage manager, they have, they have part of it in the documentary, but I watched it in context with the full thing. And he says, sometimes there's an abundance and sometimes there's a lack. And today we have an abundance of titties. <laughs> and when he says that they leave this out of the documentary, but when they said that the Woodstock 99 camera, they cut to a topless girl who's sitting on somebody's shoulders in the audience and they focus on her for like 10 seconds. And like, she sees the camera and she kind of starts like hamming it up for the camera. Yeah. He says that. And then they, they like zoom in on this topless girl for like, maybe like eight, like eight seconds. Like it's a pretty long camera shot on her. So I think that that was more egregious than the, the Backstreet Boy thing. <laughs> so one thing, and this has been true for, for years. If you go to the Woodstock 99 footage on YouTube and you scroll through the comments, there'll be a lot of like timestamps that don't have any context. Those are almost always just like people timestamping when there's topless women in the audience. And on the Dave Matthews set, uh, somebody had a comment that was posted three weeks ago. So like this was before the documentary was out. So they didn't come there fresh from the documentary. It was just somebody who was watching a Dave Matthews set three weeks ago. They made a comment that just has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 14 timestamps, no other words, no context, just 14 timestamps. And those are all just when there are boobs on camera. Three weeks ago, somebody went to that footage and they watched the whole thing and put in every timestamp of boobs. Somebody that <laughs> three weeks ago, somebody watched like an hour and 15 minutes of a Dave Matthews set just to point out where all the boobs were of just these random ass women in a crowd in Woodstock. Has 99. anyone been down that bad before? I'm going to say yes, but it's only because all these people congregate in the comments of the Woodstock 99 sets. <laughs> like the comments on these sets are it's like a bunch of people who are like, oh, the 90s were the best. The last good decade. I love Limp Biscuit, And then a bunch of people who are like, click on 537. You can see some titties. <laughs> those are the those are the two kinds of guys in the comments. There are actually a lot of nostalgic comments like people who went to Woodstock 99 and had a great time. Uh, which does make me wonder like how much of our narrative, like maybe it wasn't as bad as we think. Maybe if you go there and like you had a bunch of money and like the water thing wasn't a problem and you kind of just like stayed like you didn't lose your people. You stayed in your tent and like you you got some rest. You didn't go to the rave tent. You just kind of like went to see the bands you wanted to see. Like I could see like having a decent time there probably. Because like they said the thing, it's like, well, everyone was constantly getting drunker because like, you know, like, hey, beer is the same price as water. And it's like, okay, well, if yeah. you're drinking beer all weekend, like not only are you fucked up, but like you're getting dehydrated, you know, and if you're staying up all night at the rave tent, you know, and the, you're doing drugs, somebody, like there's all kinds of things that could have led to like having a worse time there. Whereas like, I think that if you were sort of responsible, you probably could have, as long as you had like the money to buy water and like food and stuff, it seems like you could have reasonably had a decent time. Or if you like, yeah. you know, maybe you left because the last day was when shit really hit the fan. Like a lot of people like check, right. checked out after like two days, you know, and also like there were probably just a lot of shitty bros who were like, there's rules. Yeah, probably. I mean, that those are probably the guys who did light shit on fire. 
Yeah. Which, I mean, honestly, if there's anything the documentary... Which, yeah, it looked like they were having a good time. If there's, any, <laughs> if there's anything to get from the documentary, it's kind of that the rioting was justified and it also did look cool as hell. Yeah. <laughs> like, if I was there, like, I yeah, yeah, I would have rioted. Like, it looked cool as shit. Those guys surfing on the plywood, like, they look like they're having the time of their life. To Limp Biscuit, like, that looks like the happiest time that anyone could ever have. That seems like it probably was a fun show to be at. Yeah. The one guy is dancing on the plywood like Leonardo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street, basically. Just like shirtless, wearing cargo shorts. And like those like weird men's sandals that are like, they almost cover your entire foot, but they have like sandal holes all over them. Killer, killer outfit. Just killer moves. Yeah. Like tribal arm tattoo, I think. Just like breaking it down yeah if anything it it did make me it actually made me want to be there except for the sewage issue like if you could just like airdrop in for certain things it would have been great like i would not have wanted to deal with any of that shit Woodstock 99 strategy you take a modium every day yeah you don't have to shit you pee like an animal just wherever you you convert your body to be like a kangaroo rat where your waist becomes just like a solid a solid little cube where <laughs> cube. It's, it's all just like coming out in like in like this condensed form to preserve moisture in your body. <laughs> you become like the rock hyrax. <laughs> My view of Woodstock 99 when you leave all the other stuff out is like if you like those bands, like the performances, it seemed like overall were pretty decent. Yeah. Like if you were a person who wanted to see Limp Biscuit and Corn, like you got a you I mean you got a good festival set out of them. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't all bad. Like, why? what do I care if people trash the remaining food and merch at Woodstock 99? I mean, I think that the people there were totally justified in wrecking that shit. They were treated pretty badly. Yeah. Like, no ill will towards the people who suffered through that and then were like, fuck it, let's tear this place down. Absolutely not. Also, you modeled your festival after a festival where people tore all the shit down. You wanted a repeat of the one where people... People tore the walls down at the first Woodstock. Come on. Yeah, there was way more of that going on than what we ever give it credit for. People, it wasn't actually all peace and 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 good vibes. Yeah. What do we think went wrong with Woodstock 99? What was your takeaway of, like, what is the reason why? Is it just a four, $4 water and, and sewage and shit? I 100% believe that the entire failure of Woodstock 99 was just because John Schur was shit at planning it. Yeah. Every planning decision they made was wrong. They were like, hey, let's have this at a military base where nobody can get in or out. And, you know, charge like whatever for the food. But like, if you're going to have a setup where people can get water for free, you need people full time making sure that that's being used properly because yeah. the re- a lot of the problems were like people couldn't get to the water because people were misusing it and, and bathing in it and stuff. And then the place flooded because people broke a pipe to get water because they couldn't get the water. Otherwise, you needed people there that would prevent that. You needed actual security to make sure that people weren't getting assaulted and that bad things weren't happening. Yeah. You needed some like real medical facilities so that people weren't dying from the heat. If you're having a shit ton of people packed into a space and it's going to be that hot, you have to prepare for that medically. And I think that if anything, the documentary just showed me that John Sher was like, I don't give a fuck about any of this. I'm blaming everybody else for it. And I I really I really think that if somebody else had organized it better, they'd they'd had better accommodations and people who had actually kind of like monitored and make sure it would have been fine. I think it probably would have been fine because. 
there have yeah. been a shit ton of music festivals. There are music festivals entirely centered around heavy music where things don't go wrong. Right. And and these bands have played other festivals. These bands play festivals all the time where stuff goes fine. Like all, a lot of the bands that are being fingered as, as the bad seed bands are bands who have played Warp Tour and not like presumably not, you know, caused a riot. Warp Tour, you don't have problems at Warp Tour. You have problems when it turns out that the band playing Warp Tour is like dating a 13-year-old. That's your that's that's where you have Warp Tour <laughs> problems. But um I mean, I think that really you just had a powder keg where there were just all these bad things happening and then people were kind of left to their own devices and then at the end it kind of the tension exploded because people were pissed off. I think that really kind of what we already knew was true i think that the promoters and the people who put it on just completely mismanaged it and i think they set it was set up to fail because the number one thing you have to maintain is like the safety of the people there if people can't get water and they can't like get clean and like your facilities where people are supposed to stay are being flooded by shit you have to address that or else it's your fault your facilities are the reason why this is going to hell yeah so i don't know that's my take it seems like people stuck around because there were bands they wanted to see largely but like it does seem like the vibe is like they're not enjoying the festival experience itself but they're enjoying the music yeah and a lot of people put a lot of money and traveled very far to get there so it's like the idea of like bailing on that is you want to stick it out like the dude who ended up dying seeing metallica is like metallica yeah if metallica is playing on the last day or whatever you really want to see him like how shit would that be to have to leave early after you've invested so much time and energy and money into that yeah that's my take i don't know do you have any other perspective on on what you think no like i think that is probably i think the bulk of it is just that it was a very poorly organized festival. It's not set up in a safe way. Like they should have had, I don't think they even mentioned having like any kind of cooling stations or anything. Do they? I don't think, no, they didn't have like anything. No. Yeah. Like there should have been stuff, more stuff available to help people stay cool and hydrated. And do you think there is any legitimacy to the idea that it has something to do with the fan base of some of these bands or Cause like I won't lie and say like you know at the time my perception of Limp Bizkit fans was that they were shitheads. Like I said earlier, I think that maybe the people who showed up for this weren't necessarily the best representation of the fan bases because mm-hmm. like I think that like a lot of Corn fans are like depressed poor people in like Iowa and Illinois and stuff. Oh, they definitely are. Yeah. Corn, 100% innocent to me. But I don't think that those people made it to Woodstock 99. I think it was very much yeah. the fresh out of college, white bro guys with some financial stability who were able to do this. So I think that that disproportionately congregated a lot of bros. And yeah. I'm going to say, I'm just going to go on record as saying I don't have the highest opinion of like white college frat bro type guys. Yeah. They've traditionally and even in even in you know contemporary times they are if you're in a college environment they're typically like the most predatory and problematic sorts and yeah i don't think very highly of that culture and i think that because of the logistics of the expense and all that stuff and like those guys loved shit like kid rock oh, and yeah Biscuit absolutely at the time. absolutely so i think that the fact that that festival is going to attract those people in general like that demographic is bad but like i think 
I think the thing is that if you're going to attract those groups, you need stuff in place that is going to be like, hey, if a woman comes to this festival, she can be safe. Yeah. Not having anything of that nature in place is once again, just a failing of the organizers. That's like the age old problem is like if you have a big thing with a lot of people, you're going to get shitty people showing up and it's your responsibility to manage that. I think that the demographic that this attracted is probably more predisposed to be shitty than some other demographics. Yeah. But I think that that in combination with the fact that there was like absolutely no regulation, no security, nothing, that's just throwing a match at a powder keg and being like, I wonder what's going to happen. Yeah. I think it ultimately falls back on the people putting it on. One of the things they kind of talked about that I forgot to mention was they talk a lot about grunge. Oh, yeah. We, we, missed, yeah, we missed the grunge thing. Yeah. yeah. That was kind of weird. Yeah, because that was one of the things I did have a... They were kind of talking about how like, oh, like Nirvana, the grunge was over. Nirvana wasn't there. Pearl Jam wasn't there. It's like, okay, well, uh, Kurt Cobain died <laughs> in 94. Of course, he's not there. They kind of made this implication that like stuff had gotten like so much more aggressive. So like Nirvana wouldn't have fit in there. I think it's not that it's more aggressive. It's that Nirvana were aggressive in a context that was uh, still feminist and and those like grunge bands were uh at the time at least more so it was kind of like there was anger directed at something but it, it wasn't it wasn't aimless anger and it wasn't it wasn't directed at women maybe a bit sideways from how like traditionally like hardcore punk had addressed politics but like there was some of that still there was like still that hint of yeah. like social consciousness. The punk scene in like the 80s, like late 80s, there's a pretty famous clip of really early Fugazi. They're going to play Waiting Room. And then Ian Mackay does this like little monologue of like, you know, it's not okay to hit somebody because they're a woman. It's not okay to hit somebody because they're gay. It's not okay to hit somebody because they're black. We have this like responsibility to like not perpetuate this violent bullshit that has dictated life up until this point. There, there was like very much a foundation like in the early days of like more kind of fast aggressive music having that kind of social consciousness. And so I guess I, I guess I can see how the documentary can argue that like by the late 90s, a lot of that had gone and it was just kind of like aggression for aggression's sake. Yeah, with the exception of like maybe rage against the machine. But I, I would also say rage, like while they definitely have a political viewpoint there were definitely a lot of fans at the time even to this day didn't like even to this day yeah what was what's the who's the shitty politician that's a fan of them oh shit i can't remember but like every day like somebody else on twitter sees tom morello tweeting and he's like music shouldn't be political i've been a fan of yours forever but if you're gonna if you're gonna push liberal politics i'm out and it's like have you ever read a rage against the machine lyric <laughs> At the time and still, there's a huge percentage of people who listen to Rage Against the Machine who have absolutely no idea what their politics are. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, killing in the name rocks, but like they had, have no idea. You know, what and saying. then they go off and they work forces and burn crosses and they're like, yeah, Rage rocks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the uh, the Garfield looking at the no Garfield sign. He's like, who is this for? <laughs> but yeah, I, agree. I think that like probably Rage Against the Machine is the only band of that lineup really that I know of that I can kind of say like, yeah, that's pretty in contradiction to that thesis because they are very political and like i i think that if you had arranged a festival where it was like a lot of people on the same lines as that you could have done like a politically progressive angry music thing you would yeah. have probably had to have a lot more like hardcore punk bands and stuff who have traditionally yeah very often been political but like you could have you could have done a late 90s progressive politics angry music festival it was possible 
it just wasn't going to happen if you have Limp Biscuit. But yeah, so like the idea that like Nirvana wouldn't have fit in there. It's like, I mean, Rage played. If Rage played, Nirvana could have played if they were still around, you know? Nirvana could have absolutely played. I think there was also a weird statement about like they were trying to say that those like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, that was over by 99. And while, yes, Nirvana was over in the sense that the band was no more people still love Nirvana and you still heard Nirvana on the radio all the time. Bush played Woodstock 99 and they were just a shitty Nirvana knockoff. They were a warmed over. Yeah. A Nirvana knockoff. And Creed played and they were like, we're post grunge. We picked up. It's like you took every wrong lesson from Nirvana. <laughs> oh shit. We didn't talk about uh Scott Stapp is in this a little bit. And he's very cringy. Very. Yeah. Yes. He, he like thinks that Creed was good. <laughs> And he's talking about like, yeah, we got Robbie Krieger because we wanted we got him to play with us because we wanted like some connection to the original. And it's like, I'm sorry, but getting Robbie Krieger to play with Creed is not he shouldn't have agreed to do that. First of all, that just makes me think of of uh, Roman from Party Down. Robbie Krieger wrote that one. Not a lot of people know it, <laughs> which also like Scott Stapp's Woodstock 99 attire was like a. A, a billowy dress shirt and like baggy jeans or something. It was terrible. His jeans were huge. I, I kind of loved it though. It was, it was very of the time. Wasn't he wearing like, he was wearing, like, wasn't he wearing like square toe dress shoes or something? He was wearing something silly. Yeah. He's wearing just a billowy, billowy white shirt and enormous jeans. That's incredible. Yeah. It was such a good fit. Actually. Yeah. It does make me kind of nostalgic for the fashion, the horrible fashion of the late nineties, early two thousands. Well, fortunately a lot of this stuff is coming back. So I know at least in skateboarding, which is usually a couple years ahead of the trends, people are wearing enormous 90s, 90s clothes again. So, yeah, so that'll okay. that'll be that'll be more mainstream. Get a pair of huge, huge jeans. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of in right now with like, some cutting edge people. I'm, I'm pretty sure like huge baggy stuff will be mainstream again in a couple years. Yeah. So. But yeah, I don't think that Scott Stapp said anything that was like cancelable or anything. Like, I don't think he said anything like no. bad. He just like every time he was on screen, he was acting like, "Oh yeah, we did something really important and like we really taken, we we really took the torch from Nirvana and carried the grunge spirit." And it's like, come on, don't don't say <laughs> that, man. Has he kind of he kind of like lost his mind like in the last like several years, right? Scott Stapp, I have no idea what he's been up to. I think he's like kind of like a shell of who he was. Like, I think he's kind of out of it. I guess good on him for believing in his art. Yeah. He looks kind of strange now, but I can't put my finger on it. Would he like institutionalize her a bit? Like, I think he kind of went off the rails. Oh, I, yeah, I have no idea. Like, I think that that. every time I've heard about him in recent years, it's been kind of like, oh, did you hear that Scott Stapp is like falling apart? Okay, he has a section on his Wikipedia called Legal and Personal Troubles, so... Yeah, when that when you get that on your Wikipedia page, you know you're doing well. Oh, wow. He... Ooh. 2003, Scott uh, Stapp contemplated suicide after drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey. He retrieved two MP5s from his collection and put the guns to his head, but did not pull the triggers after looking at a picture of his son, Jagger. He later said he had been convinced that anyone involved with Creed wanted him dead so he would become a Kurt Cobain martyr type and increase record sales. Uh, that would not have happened. Let's just get that one out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he's been like very mentally unstable for a long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. In March 2006, he filed a lawsuit to block the release of a sex video involving himself, Kid Rock, and four women. I did not know. Wow. I did not know about that. Him and Kid Rock. I mean, and for can you women. blame people for wanting that sex tape? <laughs> 
Oh my God, he attempted suicide in 2006. He jumped over a balcony and fell 40 feet, fracturing his skull and breaking his hip and nose. Okay, I feel really bad now for saying he looked weird. I was just going to make a shitty comment thinking like, oh, he's probably put a bunch of fillers in his face or something. Yeah. Well, he, um, I mean, I guess his face was reconstructed, but yeah, yeah he got addicted to Percocet. Okay, he's had a rough time. I feel bad for him now. It sounds like he, he has finally been diagnosed and treated for bipolar disorder. Like many great artists, he has bipolar disorder. It's like not to this level or whatever, but like I've struggled with a lot of this kind of stuff too. Like I haven't jumped off a building or been in a sex tape with Kid Rock or anything like that. But more's the pity that you, you haven't had a sex tape with Kid Rock. It's like one of my biggest regrets <laughs> in life is I haven't made that happen. If you, oh God, like there's something, something has to be terribly wrong for you to have sex with Kid Rock around. Like I don't, I don't want to, I don't know what happened, but yeah, the, that Kid Rock is in the room. Listen, I hate to disagree here, but I can only have sex if Kid Rock is in the room. So that, that's where we differ here. Um, <laughs> I came into this prepared to make fun of Scott Stapp, and now I'm left feeling bad for Scott sad. Stapp. I feel I feel bad for Scott Stapp. Yeah, I mean, like I haven't kept up with the guy, but just like every time his name has come up, as long as I can remember, it was just like horrible stuff happening to him. He was interviewed for this. He's been diagnosed and he's being treated. Apparently, he's sober now. So. Hopefully things are looking up for our favorite post-grunge our, singer. Our friend Scott's, Scott Stapp. Um, <laughs> yeah, Scott Stapp is our favorite post-grunge singer because we are we are very heavily anti-Chad Kroger on this podcast. I'm actually pro-Chad Kroger. He annoys the shit out of me. <laughs> I mean, okay, so he seems like an okay guy, and I guess... I don't know. I'm neutral on Chad Kroger now. After after you kind of told me about how Chad Kroger is like, yeah, we kind of have to keep churning out these songs to like pay all these people. That's kind of the the only saving grace of like where I give him a pass. Is he, he's like, yeah, I know we churn out garbage, but it's because a lot of people's livelihoods depend on us doing that. So like their roadies kids are being put through college. Yeah, they, they know that they've built like such an empire that so many if they have an album that flops or nobody goes to the tour like they'll be fine but all the people that make that happen are going to be hurt by it so i kind of get that rationale it's a very soulless artless rationale but i guess it's fine although i do still love the video where they walk off stage because people in like peru are throwing rocks at them so (laughs) (laughs) i I still enjoy that video yeah is there anything else we wanted to hit we've been talking for a long time I think we've thoroughly covered Woodstock 99. Yeah, we've pretty thoroughly covered it. We've been terrible at plugging things, but we we should actually plug things. But yeah, so I I assume that everybody who listens to these is just somebody who knows us on Twitter anyway right now. But um, I guess we should just get in the habit of of plugging stuff. Yeah, we should. So if somehow you, you have found this and you don't know us. Also, I guess people who listen to this might not even know we have a Twitter account. Also, so we should probably plug that. We should plug it. We have a Twitter account for this podcast. It's at turn on your monitor, but your is just YR. So that's where we post links to stuff and updates. And you can link to both of our personal accounts are linked from there. Yeah. I'm at 1 million horses written out as a number. And then you're at Jess underscore D underscore Ripper. Underscore Ripper. Yeah. Yeah. Put that in there because, I don't know, hypothetically, somebody could listen to this in the future after we're yeah. a big, successful podcast once uh, podcasts that are disproportionately about Woodstock 99 blow up. <laughs> and they will. Follow the account. Follow us on Twitter. All our episodes can be found on our anchor page. 
We're on Spotify and iHeartRadio and most other, I think you can get to it through Apple, like most, I don't know, most other places. Yeah, I think we we also have to tell people to please review us on iTunes because apparently that helps. Yeah, give us reviews and say we're good. I so, so Okay, so here's the thing. I fucking hate when YouTubers are like, subscribe and like and comment, but I know they have yeah, to. I and too. I know that if they do it, it actually works. And I know podcasting is the same way where you're like, please give us five stars and, and give us good reviews because I know that that does help. And people say that it helps and they say you have to do it, but I hate it with every fucking fiber in my being that you have to be, Me too. You have to be like, like, and subscribe. I want to be successful, but I also don't give a shit. I want to be a soul skater who doesn't sell out. And I don't, right. I don't like, I don't want to be like, like, and subscribe and remember to hit the bell notification and um, leave a comment below and like this video. It all just feels like making content and I hate making content. Yes. I hate it. My point to the audience is I will never make content. I'm an artist. <laughs> we do it for the love of the game and not for anything else exactly i mean at this point we literally are getting nothing out of this so yeah uh, that is true we've not sold out however if uh casper mattresses or stamps.com or uh blue chew or or andy the canadian casper mattress or the uh speaking of andy's um our cat pissed on my roommate's Andy mattress. <laughs> so, um, this send us, Andy send us a new mattress. Uh, so if Andy would like to sponsor the podcast, the po- the roommate of one of the podcast hosts if- <laughs> is sleeping on her couch because the cat pissed the bed. Please send us a new mattress, or we'll also take a Casper. We'll take a Casper. Uh, if Squarespace wants to sponsor us, uh, yeah. we'll make a website. If Squarespace lets us do that, because I already have my own website and it costs more money than it should. Yeah. If uh, Adam and Eve wants to give us a promo code so people can get like porno and, and dildos and stuff or <laughs> fuck, who else sponsors? What were the ones? Uh, Skillshare. I think they mostly do YouTube. Uh, Raycon earbuds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, uh, all- uh, extreme restraints. NordVPN. Um, <laughs> if any of these companies want to hook us up like we <laughs> like Woodstock 99, we will sell the fuck out instantly. We will do it all for the nookie. Is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> Shit, I feel like there's another one. I do have to say though, I have heard I have heard some podcasts advertise DoorDash, and I feel very ethically. I feel like I couldn't do that one ethically. Yeah, I don't feel good about that. That one feels really fucking uh, bad. The ones that felt the most fucked up to me. I know you're not. I, I I've been vaguely planning on doing a kind of true crime, like an episode about true crime phenomena. Yeah, we should in the future. The one I hate the most is when the true crime podcasts advertise security companies. Oh, that fucking sucks. It's so gross to me. Like, it's so gross. But yeah, that's, I mean, you, yeah, that, that's for another, another episode. <laughs> There's like a thing that I, that I, I don't want to mention my name. Cause like, I, I get the podcast, like you, you have to hustle, but like this idea of like, of like, Oh, DoorDash it's great when you're busy and you like, and it's like, ah, but ah, they, everyone knows that they're, it's great to pay a guy 99 cents to deliver you a Starbucks like coffee. Every, everyone knows that like the people doing that are getting treated like shit. But yeah, other than that, if you if you if you sell mattresses or or web space or a VPN, uh, hook us up. Hook me up with free VPN access because um, Jess has HBO access, but I have a VPN. So I if we watch a movie, I probably if a VPN wants to sponsor us, I'll, I'll put it to good use for the podcast. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> also, I need to plug pig, watch pig. Oh yeah. Uh, watch pig. Go to the theaters, risk, risk, uh, Delta variant. 
It's Nicolas Cage's most nuanced and understated performance in many years. Get that Delta see pig. I have not seen pig. Can you, uh, can we, can we somehow shoehorn a Nicolas Cage episode? Yeah, probably. I think we can kind of do whatever okay. we want. Uh, I like Nicolas Cage. Yeah. You're, you're more of a cage head than me. Yeah. He's in one of my favorite movies though. Like top five. What movie? Take a guess. In my head, this should I be, in that my head, this should be easy. What I thought you're, you're, I don't know. Raising Arizona. I didn't know that was one of your top five. It's like, I, I love that movie so much. It is great. I love that movie. Yeah. He's, he's in all of my top five. <laughs> <laughs> your, your top five is just like when you pick up those like uh, Nicolas Cage five movie packs at Walmart for seven bucks. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's the other thing that we do need to plug actually is that I always put it in the description, but Jess does the episode art. And if you are like, hey, this episode art is cool. I would like to buy art from the person who does this. It, I don't know if there's an easy way to plug your Etsy, but you do sell. Uh, there isn't, but yeah, I do. But you can get to it from her yeah. Twitter account. But uh, she sells prints and stuff. So not of uh, not of like Fred Durst and stuff, but she does. <laughs> she does. Uh, but also, stuff. if somebody wants to buy any of our episode art, I would happily sell it to them. Yeah. So uh, those uh, the episode art is is physically made. Yeah. If anybody if anybody is is wanting a Fred Durst painting or whatever, that stuff exists and can be purchased from said artist. So um, <laughs> I guess it's fine to plug your shit. I guess that's a normal thing. It is fine. It's a normal thing. Yeah. It feels bad to me for some reason, but. Uh... I think because whenever I listen to a podcast and they're like plugging their shit and like saying, please vote for us in the podcast awards. I'm like, oh, fuck off. Oh, well, I mean, don't vote like fucking any podcast like that. Never vote for us in a podcast award. That shit's corny. We don't believe in voting in like political elections. So like we don't believe in voting for (laughs) for podcasts either. So fuck that. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll plug my music thing once that happens. Yeah, I do. Spoiler alert. I do the uh, the goofy intro and outro music to the podcast, actually, because yes, the whole premise of this podcast is that we're actually like a quadruple threat of a podcast. We can do everything. Also, uh, if anybody is like uh, if anybody is like, hey, I have a cool job that I need to pay somebody to do. Uh, neither of us have jobs. So that's all. <laughs> Yeah, there's that too. If you want to just give us money because you feel sorry for us. Uh, Soliciting sponsorship in the uh, in the form of a job. <laughs> um, just, this has gone on way too fucking long. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we obviously have absolutely nothing going on in our lives. So yeah. until next time, you know, it's, it's one of those days where you don't want to wake up. Everybody sucks. And we don't give a fuck. Please tell me, please tell me